verses 1 through 18. So give your careful attention to the reading of God's word here today. John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life. And have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen? This is the Word of God. You may be seated this morning now and receive it well as it is proclaimed to you. It is great to be back here. I know so many of you. Thank you for your warm welcome, and thank you for praying. I really appreciate that. I thought we had the big prayer request for Pastor Mike done a few years ago, but we also had them last year, so thank you very much for praying. I think I've heard your pastor preach probably between 60 and 75 times, and I'm always so thankful to sit underneath the Word of God preached by Pastor Steve, and I know you're thankful. Aren't you thankful for your pastor? Uh, If it was up to me, I would say in Felton, population 4,575 people, uh, the most important person, not because of him, but because of his office, is Pastor Steve Watkins, right? Preaching Christ Jesus from the text week in and week out, right? Do you ever say to yourself, I'm coming to church today, do you think Steve's going to talk about Jesus? You ever think that? So you have a precious gem. I hope you're thankful for Pastor Steve and his family, and I am very, very thankful for him, so thank you. What's the meaning of life? Let's make it more 
pastoral. What's the meaning of your life? Why are you even on this earth? Does your life matter? Seriously, does your life matter at all? I mean, if you ask the world some of these questions, they're honest, but they don't have the true solution. For instance, one man said, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Life's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury. I guess maybe you could ask Mark Twain some of these deep questions about life. Except here's what Twain says when he's about to die. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps up upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. Death comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift ever had for them. They vanish from a world where there are no consequences at all, a world which they will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Welcome to Trinity Bible Church. (laughs) At least these people know there's a problem. There's a problem to life. Uh, Frustration and vanity and futility, we know, we recognize it. People in the church do and people outside the church do. What's the meaning of life? And so if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at this very issue today. And I think at the end, after maybe some honesty, uh, maybe a little discouragement here or there, we're going to have some wonderful encouragement. And I go to the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's what I think of often. I think of the book of Ecclesiastes this way. You're sitting at the beach. It's cloudy, kind of foggy. It's 68 degrees like it was last week. But every once in a while, the sun comes out, and it just makes everything nice, doesn't it? And that's kind of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of dark, kind of despairing, frustrating things going on. But once in a while, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and one time today in our passage, the sun's going to come out, and you're going to feel the warmth of the sun, and you're going to think, oh, that's right, I understand things rightly. The book of Ecclesiastes, I was even taught this week, when you think of the Old Testament, you can think of it this way, 39 books, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Five books of Moses, 12 historical books, and at the back end, 12 minor prophets, five major prophets, and right in the middle, five books of what? What kind of book is this? It's a book of what? Wisdom. Right, and so you have books of poetry and wisdom, and of course we are Christian people and we read the book as Christians, and here we have this Christian book of wisdom as we ponder uh, the, the wisdom incarnate Christ Jesus. What kind of wisdom would he, through the Holy Spirit, have for us in the book of Ecclesiastes? So I'm going to take my time today, but we, I think, are going to get through chapters 1 and chapter 2 today. Steve, I know, will preach 10 sermons on two verses. No, you used to do that, but you don't do that anymore. When you're young, that's what you do. I'm 900 uh, sermons through the book of Romans, and I'm through chapter 4. Actually, true story, I'm from New England, or I live in New England now. There was a pastor who was there for 50 years, and he preached Isaiah chapters 1 through 8 in those 50 years and then died. We like depth, but that's too deep. (laughs) 
So what we're going to do this morning is pretty simple. We're going to go through Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and we're going to see five problems and one solution. Kind of five dark clouds, and then the sun's going to come out finally, and we're going to go, oh, that's right. And I think you're going to be encouraged, I think you're going to be convicted, and I think you'll be reminded again that eternity is real, one day we'll die, and the centrality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus is central. What does he say in chapter 1, verse 1? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's this preacher. Martin Luther was the first to call him preacher. And there's this preacher, and he has these sayings that he wants to preach, kind of words of wisdom, words of, of wise living. And, of course, you begin to think to yourself, oh, Ecclesiastes, ecclesiology, same root word. Here we have a preacher who's preaching to the church, as it were, and he's giving them wisdom. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And you can say to yourself, who is this exactly? Well, here's who exactly wrote it. Ready for this? The Holy Spirit wrote Ecclesiastes. You say, I think maybe Solomon did. Most commentators would be with you. That's fine. I don't want to get bogged down in all the details. It's anonymous, technically. And he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We know that much. He's a king. Maybe it's right when scholars will say Solomon was a young man. He writes Song of Solomon. He's a little older. He writes Proverbs. Now at the end of his life, he writes Ecclesiastes. That could be true. But what is true for certain is he writes in a kind of a provocative style. He writes in a way that's really engaging. And you're reading it and you're thinking, wow, that's pretty blunt. That's why I love Ecclesiastes, because I'm in New England, right? Blunt. We just stab you in the front, never in the back. And so that's what Ecclesiastes does. You're laughing too much. This is a Reformed Baptist church. I said it before, but one more reminder. We want to make sure we read this book as Christians. We, we want to make sure we understand how this fits into the redemptive flow of history. This is wisdom that's true. But it's Christ-centered wisdom. So five problems as we assess the meaning of life, one solution. One solution and one solution only in this section. Let's look at the first problem, and that is life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. Life is frustrating, fleeting, and vain. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now, as your pastor, I'm sure, has taught you, this word for vanity can be translated different ways depending on context. And so you could translate it puzzling, right? You could think of somebody kind of shaking uh, or scratching their head. I can't understand this puzzle, this enigma, this riddle. And when we look at the world, that's kind of what we think of sometimes. This just doesn't seem to work. How can I figure life out? This word could also mean frustrating, uh, vexing. I just love that word vexing because that's kind of as I see the world out there, I just, I can't figure it out. It, it seems to be futile. It seems to be meaningless. There's so much frustration. And this also could be translated fleeting. By the way, this is how it should be translated back one chapter in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. You just turn on the other side of the page. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. You think beauty's vain? You have an attractive husband or attractive wife, you think it's vain? You think it's frustrating? No, no, it's fleeting though, is it not? You're younger, beauty's there, you're older, well, not so much. 
But the word habel, uh, it, it's, it's, it either means puzzling, frustrating, or fleeting. Okay? So here he, he emphasizes it. If I want to say to you, Jesus is king, I can say that. Or if I say he's king of kings, I can make it superlative. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord. But if I say he's the Lord of lords, and now we have vanity, and it's vanity of what? What's the text say? Of vanity. I mean, this is a big issue. The ultimate vanity. There's, there's issues going on in life with frustration and puzzling bewilderment, and it's just fleeting. You know, you go to the dollar store. Check that. The dollar twenty-five store. And you buy a little jar of some little liquid, a little, little plastic thing of liquid, and you take the top off, and you put this little straw-like thing in there, and it's got a round thing, and you take it out, and you go, and what comes out? Bubbles. And how long do they last? They go from here to, to Monterey, right? No, no, they just disappear before your very eyes. That's what's going on in this world. That's one of the ways we could think about this world vanity. It's here and gone so fast. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? Great question. I've been working since I'm 12 years old. Catching crawdads down at Crawdad Creek, sell them to the fisher, uh, to the fishermen in Omaha, Nebraska. What do I have for it? What do I have to gain? Notice, too, the text, which he does under the sun. Now, that could be the secular world. That certainly is the fallen world. In this life, what do we have? The fall's real. Adam did actually sin. It's affected everything. Does this resonate to you like it does to me? I'm going to quote a Bible verse. I won't tell you where it's from until after. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Adam has sinned, and it has affected the whole world. And instead of paradise and bliss, life is hard. Life is difficult. I love it when the Lord asks questions like this, verse 3. What, does it adva- what advantage does it have, dear Christian what advantage does you, do you have in all this work which you do under the sun? Penetrating questions. Reminds me of the Lord Jesus when he said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? Soul. Reminds me of Job 25. How then can a man be in the right before God? We read today, did we not, in Hebrews 2? How shall we ne- escape if we neglect such a great what? Salvation. Penetrating questions. Chicago County, the large one there is Cook County. Here's what a Cook County sewer employee said. I dig the ditch to get the money to buy the food to get the strength to dig the ditch. That's life. Do we make any positive benefit, any lasting benefit? And then what the writer does, he moves into this kind of poetic flow of this rhythm of life that seems like it's all futile. Do you notice it? Probably you could even tell in your Bible there's some indentation there. It looks different than just block font there. There's there's some space there. He's trying to tell you there's some poetry there. And he goes right for these sad rhythms where there's no gain at all. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I mean, does it even matter? 
your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, your great-grandparents' generation, the earth's just the same as it was. We come and go. It seems to make no difference. Verse 5, you can just kind of feel it. It's like you're, you're, you're going down Mammoth Mountain on a slalom course, kind of back and forth. You can just feel the rhythms of frustration. Sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. It's just panting, it's just running, the sun is, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. The thing about this idea of the meaning of life and its frustration, the world gets it. There are so many songs about frustrating, futile, I can't get no satisfaction. Right? They know. Right? Or if you're more modern, um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Or everybody likes this line, don't they? Or this band. Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, you fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Who sang that song? Pink Floyd. You pagans know every word, don't you? (laughs) Pink Floyd. (laughs) But see, they understand. Unbelievers get it. And by the way, this is not really part of the sermon, but I guess it is now. I think you know how to talk to your unbelieving friends about the frustration of life and how we learned today in John chapter 10, the satisfaction found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the abundant one who lays down his life for people, the sheep. One of my favorite rides down on the boardwalk is the merry-go-round. Why? Two reasons. Because I'm old and I can't do anything else. <laughs> Makes me dizzy for two days. No wonder Grandpa never went on that roller coaster. And the other one is because I could take those little round things off of the, the side deal there in the merry-go-round and try to throw it in the clown's mouth, right? What do you do, dear Christian, when life is in a merry-go-round? It's a frustration go-around. It goes around and around and around. Where does it end? Where does it stop? Where does it go? What is it advantage does it have you? You end up where you left off. He goes on, verse 7, all streams run to the sea. You'd think they kind of get full after that, wouldn't you? But the sea's not full to the place where the streams flow. They flow there again. He's using this language, this repeating kind of cascading language of everything just as frustration. There's no profit. All things, verse 8, are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Does anything last? Is there satisfaction in anything? Oh, if I only could get the iPhone 4. Remember when that would solve all your problems? John Paul Sartre said, Things are entirely what they appear to be, and behind them, there's nothing. Verse 9, you could think of songs behind this as well. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. 
Is history going somewhere? Under the sun, it doesn't really seem like it. It's just this big circle of, of emptiness. People scurrying for things, searching for things, trying to find meaning in life. Is there meaning in life? We'll get to the answer to the question of that very soon. Probably one of the most devastating poems I've ever read is by Stephen Crane. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never... You lie, he cried and ran on. Verse 11, there's no note for remembrance of things, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. In two generations, people will say, Mike Abendroth, who? And they'll say that of you, of you as well. Who? Actually, it's a curse in the Old Testament, both in Jeremiah and in Psalm 83, to not be remembered. Is this it? And see, everything's pushing you to go, I'd like to kind of take a breath. This, this anaconda str- is strangulating me. This, this, this world and its system is just is taking the life out of me. And I know if I breathe in a little bit, it contracts and I can't breathe anymore. It's making us want to lift, lift our eyes up because you see meaning in life isn't found in the world. And here's how we live lives, of course, as even Christians because we struggle and stumble as well. We're like horses with blinders on. And we can't really see what's going on except our blinders aren't on the side. Our blinders are where? Here. We're not thinking about these eternal realities and verities, and that's why so often you think of, of the refrain of Habakkuk, and you think of the refrain of Gen, uh, Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, the just shall live by what? Faith, right? Shorthand for faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and is going to return. Problem one, life is frustrating. Problem two, found in verses 12 to 18, wisdom doesn't help. Wisdom doesn't help. You know what? Ignorance is bliss in this regard. Solomon, if he's the writer, I think he probably is, he's thinking, okay, life is very difficult, so I'm going to use my brain to figure it out, and I'm going to take philosophy classes and education classes, and if I can just perceive things properly, it'll be much better. That's how I get out alive. I'm in a world where frustrations are turned up to 11. Maybe if I can think about it rightly, it'll work. I, the preacher, verse 12, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. We're moving to this first-person account now, and if anybody has the resources to do what he's going to do and to be educated and know where the books are and the training materials, it's going to be him. He's got a calculated strategy, verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've got the strategy when, and the Hebrews like, I'm going to search and dig and, and find out what is going on behind the scenes. Verse 14, and I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Hyperbolically, I've seen everything and it just still doesn't matter. Striving after wind. You ever strive after wind? Maybe literally, my dad... Uh, he always had this slogan when we were bored. 
By the way, I think kids should be bored regularly, right? That's one of the missing elements. Kids don't play with Tonka trucks, and they're not bored anymore. My dad would say, son, you're bored, you're fidgeting around the house, go chase cars. He could have just as easily said, I'm going to fall into this baptismal, I know it. Go strive after the wind. Go chase the wind. He's just never going to do it. He can't catch it. Verse 15, what's crooked can't be made straight. What's lacking can't be counted. I mean, is there anything in this world? Is there anybody in this world that hasn't disappointed you? Said my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I've applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is freedom. Striving after wind. So you know what? Maybe this is a better option. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Maybe I'd just ignore it. That'd be better. One Greek philosopher said, only the educated are free. Not true. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, said, how unprofitable is the luxuriancy of knowledge. He was only filled with knowledge is like a glass filled with froth. What a vain, foolish thing it is to have knowledge and make no spiritual use of it. I mean, we've got these dark clouds. We're waiting for the sun to come out, but we've got the third dark cloud now. Not only is life frustrating, human wisdom doesn't help, but number three, pleasure and possessions aren't the answer. Pleasure and possessions aren't the answer. I think of 2 Timothy 3, people who are lover of pleasures rather than lovers of God. It's not a good thing. Well, he talks about pleasure at verse 1, talks about pleasure at verse 10, and everything seems to be about that in the beginning and the middle. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, by the way, we just finished one whole chapter preaching the Bible, didn't we? One chapter down, one to go. I know what you're doing. You're probably timing me, right? But preachers always go faster in the last few points, do they not? You know these things. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was Vanity. I mean, you can just hear Adam, can't you? If I only had one more tree, I'd be happy. You ever go to the store and you're buying something? We went to the Rip Curl outlet sale the other day, and you get all this stuff, and you think it's so, so cheap and so wonderful, and you're so happy with yourself, even you're looking at your purchases in the car on the drive home. Have you done that before? Two weeks later, what are you thinking about? It doesn't fulfill. It's not happiness. Well, maybe I go to the comedy club, verse 2. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I mean, laugh and the world laughs with you. I thought they said that. Except it's not true and we see tragedies like Robin Williams, do we not, the comedian? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Stop there for a second. Here's what Solomon's doing. He's not saying I'm just going to get drunk and ignore things. But I'm going to use wine wisely, and I'm going to approach it in such a way where I'm going to use alcohol and wine. By the way, he could get the best wine from the best vineyards. And I'm going to use it because maybe through the lens of wine, I can, it was going to help me. 
This is not debauchery. This is not Bacchanalian craziness. No, no. I'm trying to figure out through wisdom what it's like. The text goes on how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I'm not going to drown my sorrows in alcohol, but I'm going to use it as a lens. Maybe that will work. And then he tries all these other things. Buildings, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. Might as well get into Greenpeace while we're here in Felton. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in all of them all kinds of fruit trees, pools, water, forests, growing trees. And what's the refrain? For myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. How's that going to work out for you? Right? We've called it before, you probably heard it. The unholy trinity is what? Me, myself, and I. Myself, 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 myself. And when you've got this kind of money, you can buy slaves. Verse 7, I bought male, female slaves. Flocks, herds, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. Last king had N, I've got N plus one. I'm just going to go for it. I can even buy human beings. Except we know deep down, do we not? Even as I read that Sinclair Ferguson quote in your bulletin, man is meant to worship. Women are meant to worship, not consume. And he's figuring that out. You see it in verse 8. Silver, gold, treasure. How about singers? concubines, the delight of the sons of man. How many wives did Solomon have? 700. Probably for strategic alliances, right? Maybe didn't even meet half of them. Strategic alliances. But he would meet the concubines, and I'd always tell when they're, when, when they're younger kids, they're like, Dad, you know, what's a concubine? And I said, it's the exact same thing as a porcupine. Easy to remember. That's all you need to know right now. Not good. You see the world, right? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. What satisfies the world? And they still haven't found what they're looking for. And in the midst of all this, we too live in this world and we're thinking, okay, if we buy into world deliver, world do this, and then it doesn't, the difference is depression, the difference is frustration, the difference is futility. I'm supposed to get everything and I don't get much. Versus you'll see it even back in Philippians and other places. If we remember what we're deserving, what do we deserve? It's called the lake of fire, right? How many times do you have to spit in the king's face before he executes you? James 2, how many times do you have to sin against God before it's just held accountable for all the law? And what do we get today? We heard it in John chapter 10. We heard it in some of the songs. We heard it in Hebrews, Psalm 102. What do we get? Grace upon grace upon grace. That's what we get. We get the hope of heaven. And Pastor Steve prayed about that today. Christian, do you know you're justified? God's sanctifying you. He'll glorify you. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You don't have to pay for one of your sins because Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. The Bible says unbelievers have their shepherd, his name's death. And so when we start feeling like this, we start sensing our lives like this of frustration, it is like a light on your dashboard in the car. When it's a yellow light, what do you do? I just have black electrical tape and I just tape over it. (laughs) Essentially, that's what we do. Something's wrong with the catalytic converter. When there's a red light, what do you do? 
You're supposed to pull off on the side of the road. This is important. Head gasket, it's going to blow, whatever. When you start having this feeling of frustration in your life and vexation and frustration and you think, okay, wait a second. Kind of a little yellow lights on here. It's, it's like my finger, I touched the hot stove. God gave me nerves to say, oh, I shouldn't do that. So the Lord in his kindness is letting us feel the fruit, feel the evidence of, of our eyes being blinded. And now we're not thinking about who the person and the work of the Lord Jesus is. By the way, that's why we have preaching the gospel every week from the church, and we have the administration of the sacrament of communion preaching to you as well. You come before God this week based on the work of another. Works in our conscience, works at work, works at home maybe, but we come to God even today based on the work of another. Anyway, all that to say, stay away from concubines and porcupines, both. Somebody said Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 is like a person's freshman, sophomore, and junior year in college. And they find out it doesn't satisfy. William Blake said, less than everything cannot satisfy man. Did you get that? Another man said, the the cure to hedonism is to try it. So I became great, verse 9, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also... My wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Kind of sounds like ordering on Amazon, doesn't it? I'll just get whatever I want. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found no pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Question, dear congregation, how many times has Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, or any other word for God or Lord been mentioned so far? One and one time only, I think, in passing. Do you see what happens when, when the Lord God is out of the picture? When, when Elohim the Father, Elohim the Son, Elohim the, the Spirit is out of the picture, what happens? This is all there is. I'm not walking by faith. I go with God out of the picture, there's frustration, and it's built in. It's supposed to be that way. Verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, nothing to be gained under the sun. He puts all those metaphors together. There's two more dark clouds than the sun. Number four, death is inevitable. Number one, life's frustrating. Human wisdom doesn't help. Number two, number three, pleasure doesn't help. Neither do possessions. And now number four, death is inevitable. Verses 12 to 16. You want to talk about the ultimate frustration in life? You die. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Here it comes, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Talk about frustration. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes, dogs die, you die. What's the difference? I mean, Aristotle, dead. Socrates, dead. Plato, dead. All of us, going to be dead. Those are some dark clouds. 
this equalizer of death. Final cloud before the good news. The fruit of all this thinking simply despair, hatred, and a mind that's racing. You could just call it fruit, dark fruit, rotten fruit, fruit with little bugs flying around it. Verse 17, when we see friends who think this is it, I think you have a little window into their soul so you could bring them some good news, some joy. Here's what happens. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. This is a word of hostility and hatred, and I'm deeply despising this life. Thoreau said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. This is antagonistic desperation. This is, I'm mad as Hades. And I'm going to do something about it. This is, when I was a kid, I could never understand someone that might take their life. How could that be? Well, for the unbeliever who acts this way, I I see. This is the end. This is the end game. It doesn't matter. You're going to die sooner or later. So why live in this vexating world? I hated I toil, verse 18, in which I toil under the sun, seeing I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he'll be wise or fool? Will my grandkids take care of it or not? Will he be the master of all for which I've toiled and use my wisdom under the sun? This also is vanity. Everything you have is going to be left to someone else. I'm laying there in the hospital last year thinking this could be it, and I had an iPhone. That's all I had. And I couldn't even take that with me. Focus on self leads to problems. It leads to despair of life. Verse 20, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all my toils of labors under the sun. Might as well cash it in. I mean, if the response to God's grace isn't love God and love neighbor and it's just love self. Because sometimes a person who has toiled, verse 21, with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? And your mind starts racing. You ever wake up in the middle of the night? Your mind is racing. No mental rest. His day's full of sorrow. Verse 23. Works vexation. At night his heart does not rest. This also is futility. By the way, so far, these five dark clouds are probably your personal testimony before God saved you by sovereign supernatural grace. Amen? It's my life. Just a little bit different. Move things around some. That's my life. That's my testimony. My life goals, what I thought satisfied. Search for meaning. Self, 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 and it just didn't work. We all know this to be true. Why is Ecclesiastes so powerful? Because, yes, it's truth from outside revealed to us, but also we know it on the inside in the sense that we, this is true. Well, it's kind of cold down here in the Santa Cruz Beach. I sure wish the sun would come out, don't you? It's time for some good news. I mean, so far in Ecclesiastes, I've made a bunch of sandcastles with the kids and grandkids. You know I'm going to be a grandpa? Just a couple months. And I make all these sandcastles with the kids. Elaborate. Took me all day to make with some other friends with shovels and everything else. And you know, I went back to the same beach the next day and what do I see? 
It's flat because the tide came up and it just everything's gone. That's Ecclesiastes. I work and work and work and work, and it's just all gone. What does it matter? Does anybody care? And of course, often in the Bible, the good news isn't that good unless we realize the bad news is that bad, right? When you think you're, you're kind of like you make some boo-boos and your life is, I hate it when people say, my life is so messy. What they mean is so sin-drenched. I'm such a sinner. Even, even though I'm a Christian, I still sin. It's this Romans 7 thing. And, 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 and I think, you know what? This is bad news. Or if you're an unbeliever, this is bad news. I stand before a God. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Is there hope? Is there a Savior? You know, that rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus gives him him the law to show him he needs a Savior. And you know what that man should have said? Lord, I've heard you're merciful in the past. Would you be merciful to me, please? Would you please forgive me? When you know how bad the bad news is, you think, I I need some good news. So that makes this solution, this sunburst coming out even all the better. And here's the solution to those five dark clouds. I want you, dear congregation, to see your life your personal life, and everything in it as a gift, a sovereign gift, a gracious gift from God, the triune God himself. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see your life and everything in it as a gift from the triune God himself. God's not mentioned much so far. I wonder if he's mentioned here in the solution. Verse 24. Here we go. I have some good news for you, dear congregation. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink. By the way, that's shorthand for finding satisfaction, often in poetical books. That he should eat and drink or have satisfaction and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And with him... You can eat and you can have enjoyment and you can have satisfaction. That's amazing. This metaphor of eating and drinking and experiencing satisfaction in life is quite different than everything's vanity, everything's striving, everything's sweat and toil and I have to do it again tomorrow. Listen to Moses. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Life is difficult. We're under the sun. The world's fallen. Adam's sin still wreaks havoc in this world. And Lord... But when my eyes are focused on you and I'm walking by faith and not by sight, would you please satisfy us in the morning with good things, with wonderful things, and help us to be glad? I want you, dear Christian, to enjoy your life with an eye set to the triune God. There will be difficult times, that's true, but there will be seasons of simple, wonderful, good pleasures and eating and drinking and fellowship. I mean, think about it. Don't you love to give little treats and good things to your children? Did that, did that make you happy, parents, when you gave something to your children that make them happy? I hope so. And, and if I'm a sinful human being as a dad, and I like to do that, how much more the generous father? And you can think of Jesus talking about how great the father is, even when he gives good things to unbelievers and the sun and the rain and other things. 
I just think about if I like to, I mean, one of my favorite things to do was to give little tiny kids, little, chil- little children, vanilla soft serve ice cream. I eat the chocolate part off because you get it dipped at Dairy Queen. I eat the chocolate, but then the children gets the vanilla. And I'd almost create something in their mouth. I mean, you just got this big blob of vanilla. Kid can't get their mouth around it. The child can't. So I would kind of, with my mouth, create this, this little easy thing to just bite. And I remember the first time my kids ever had ice cream. There's only one first, and here's the first for ice cream. And I put that in their mouth, and first it's too cold, right? And they're like, what? And then the taste kicks in. Remember their faces? And when you watch their face, you did with your face what they were doing with their face. And this pleasure, this burst of like yummy goodness. I don't even know. That's not my notes. How do I say that in Hebrew? (laughs) God is a giving God. Demonstrated most particularly in, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his, his only begotten son. For you, Christian, he gave his best. If God didn't spare his son, Romans 8, won't he freely give you other things, all things? If I like to give to my kids and my grandkids, what, about, what does God do for his children? Life is a gift from God. He intends you to do, enjoy that, seeing that it's from him. And so, of course, we think, I was guilty, God was gracious, I respond with what? With gratitude. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Jesus said, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow's thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat or what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father, Jesus said in Luke 12, knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be what? Added to you. Now, people rub us the wrong way, and I'm sure we rub people the wrong way, but just stop your congregation and think, if you're married, my spouse is a gift from Almighty God to me. Thank you, Lord, for that sweet gift. My children are a gift from God to me. Thank you. My job, my health, my taste buds, my sight, my hearing, my mind. I know what I deserve and I know now what I get. And I think, do you know what? I need to see them as such and then treat them as such. I like to look at root words and figure out what they mean. My kids always joke at me because I do that. But if I were to take the word enthusiasm, it comes from entheos, to put God into something. Yeah, yeah, I know it was more pagan, this, that, and the other, but I, what I'm trying to do with Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 and 25, to make you see everything in your life, Psalm 52, the goodness of God endures continually. In your life, you've seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you know it's true because you have Scripture. God is light and in Him is no what? Darkness at all. And He gives. The Lord is good and He does good. Did you know even the word, the original Saxon meaning for our English word God is the good? Because he's the good one. God is so good. God made everything, and behold, it was very good. You just over and over, you read scriptures and you think, God's so good, God's so good. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus made of a woman, made under law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I challenge you to respond with Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So instead of everything focused on me, myself, and I, it's the triune God, the eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit, the unbegotten Father sending the begotten Son. Thomas Brooks said, The rattle without the breast will not satisfy the child. The house without the husband will not satisfy the wife. And the world without Christ will not satisfy the soul. So why do we try to find satisfaction in this world? Flip over to Ecclesiastes 9. By the way, I'm going to do something today that I I don't often do. I'm preaching a sermon now. I'm about ready to land the plane. I want you to start thinking about lunch right now. Where are you going to go? Some kind of cheesy guacamole, um, sour cream filled quesadilla. Luke the other day was up here and he got a deep fat fried quesadilla. Or maybe you're just going to go down to some whole roots place and just get some sprouts and put some balsamic vinegar on. Okay, go ahead. You can if you want, but don't invite me over. I want you to start thinking about lunch. Why? Because I want you to start thinking about everything that God gives is good. Everything that God gives... Look at Ecclesiastes 9. I'll let the passage speak for me. Verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. He accepts you because of Christ Jesus. And He accepts your works because He accepts you in Christ. He's approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Here we go. Dear Trinity Bible Church, enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has, here's the gift part, here's the goodness part, he has given you under the sun. This is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Is God truly some cosmic killjoy that wants you to have no fun at all, no pleasure at all? Of course he's not. He's a giving God. From the hand of God. From the hand of God. Do these verses resonate with you, dear Christian, about God's goodness? Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Stand there at the beach and you watch wave after wave after wave after wave. And that's the goodness of God. Wave after wave after wave. And you think, well, you know, but I've had these trials in my life and I've suffered and I have pain. That is true. We live in a fallen world. But I know you can eat and you can drink and have enjoyment with Him. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 25. Literally that without Him is outside of Him. Outside of Him. Paul says this to a leader in the church. I wonder if it might be applicable to you too. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to what? Enjoy. 
Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. From the hand of God. Rightfully so, we should say Joe Osteen's theology is vacuous, heretical, an aberration, and don't buy into it. But I don't think we should say to ourselves, since he seems happy, since he smiles a lot, since this, that, and the other, that, that my response now to that is sour, dour, you, you heard people called the frozen chosen. And you know, I'm thankful that, that you're not that way. I'm thankful that you realize the richness that God has given and the bounties in Christ. And if he gives you the greatest gift, you get the lesser gift. And you think from the hand of God, with God, the triune God, Jesus as my Savior, the Spirit of God dwelling in me, the Father who sent the Son, I can have enjoyment. Oh, oh, no wonder Paul said, whether then you eat or you drink or what? Ever you do, do all to the what? Praise of the world. Sorry, to the glory of God, right? God intends you to have enjoyment in life, seeing everything you have, including salvation, is from the free hand of God, the Father who predestined, the Son who lavished His love at Calvary, and the Spirit of God who raises that Son from the dead. And then he ends, verse 26, For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Last passage, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just going to read it. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're feeling that frustration, you think, you know what, how'd you know about my life? Because God knows about your life. And, and I freely offer, without price, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the life you were supposed to live, perfectly obeying the law, who dies for sinners like you, for all your transgressions, past, present, and future, and who was raised from the dead to prove it. And your response is to believe in Him and to rest in Him. For us Christians, we want to respond with thanksgiving and to see without blinders on that God is faithful and He's good. And we can say thank you, Lord, for these taste buds as we have that deep fat fried quesadilla or we have that glass of Welch's grape juice, if you please, or wine, if you please, whatever the text is, whatever we, we, we respond with the text. But now what do we do in this fallen world as Christians? Should we just lay back and let God? Should we say to ourselves, you know, we can just coast, everything's fine. Don't you love it here? 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick it up in verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And my charge to this dear church is simple. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in, what? Say it. Vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your spirit inspiring Ecclesiastes. You didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. Why wouldn't you graciously give us all things? We're thankful for that. We're thankful that we're more than conquerors because of you who loved us. 
And we are thankful that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come, powers, height, depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.